thinking as we were <clears throat> singing the songs that we sing, and they're typically about the Lord and His redemption and our salvation and so on. And as you read and sing those words, some of you may be skim right over those, and others pay attention to really what's there. And those words come from the authority of the Scripture, obviously, and telling us about the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ and the life that He has to offer us, both here on earth and then eternally. And I began to think, you know, there are things that we like about the Scripture that we will immediately put ourselves under the authority of those particular passages or those verses or whatever that may be. And by that, I mean we like the fact that we believe that the Scripture is authoritative when it speaks on how to be saved. How do you know that you have eternal life? Well, you can find that in the Scripture. And we very quickly come under that authority. And we say, nah, well, I'm claiming that one. That's what I, I need that. I've got to hang on to that. Or when we're dealing with something that provides us a difficult time in life. And it's at those times, obviously, where we sometimes will we'll run to the Scripture to say, what does God have to say about this? How can I make it through? And it's in those times of humility when things aren't going well that we will subject ourselves and say, I need to be under the authority of God's Word. He has something to say. And, and then when we, when we look at maybe our economy these days and we say, you know, I, I realize that I, I can't really trust my money. I can't really trust my stuff. We run to verses like Philippians 4.19 where it says, God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. We put ourselves under the authority of those verses, meaning we'll live by those. You with me? You've probably done that before. You probably said, I need something. Look, God, show me what to do. I'll, I'll do anything I can to, to, to endure or make it through this particular situation. Or, God, I, I need wisdom. Help me know what to do. And it's in those times where we are readily available for God's authority in our lives. And and this morning, as we talk about a very difficult subject, I want to challenge us, myself included, you, those who will listen maybe on the CD or Internet or wherever it may be, to, to bring ourselves under the authority of God, not just on the issues that we immediately run to Him for, but on all the issues of life. Because if God's Word has authority in one area, we cannot pick and choose which areas will allow it to have authority in others, if you understand what I mean. It must carry authority in all areas. And when we talk about the subject this morning of divorce, we have two choices. We can choose to go with public thought or personal opinion, sort of what's out there, or we can choose to say, what does God's Word have to say and I will, as a result, adjust my life accordingly. And we are good, even as Christians, of saying, well, here's the way I sort of want to live, or this is what I think, and this is sort of what I believe, and let me go to the Bible and try to find a verse that supports what I think. You ever done that? Some of you are laughing. You've done that. Listen, preachers do it all the time. Let me tell you, we are awful at this. We have something we want to preach on. It's just a good idea. We just like that topic, so we're going to find some verse that supports the idea that we want to get across. I'll tell you what, that's tempting. Run from people that do that. I'll tell you that. If you're looking for a church home, this may or may not be the one, but run from people that will go to the Scripture to try to support whatever agenda they may have at that particular time in their life. Run from that. We have to go to the Scripture and say, no matter what it says, 
No matter what the standard is, we will abide by that standard regardless of how we feel going to the Scripture. If you want to be a great Bible student, and I understand this stuff is all free, this has nothing to do with the message, right? But if you want to be a great Bible student, some of you are saying, look, I don't get anything out of the Bible. It doesn't make any sense to me. Or you say, well, you know, I just don't understand it. Or, or it doesn't seem to do anything in my life. If you want to be a great Bible student, start with this. You have what are called pre-understandings. You go to the Bible thinking something already. Everybody does. You have presuppositions about what you think is going to be in there. You want to be a great Bible student. You want to be as objective as possible. Take your understanding to the Bible, read it, and let it then shape your understanding. And then go back to the Bible again and let it shape and refine you over and over and over and over again. Nobody, trust me, nobody ever arrives at their Bible knowledge and their understanding of Scripture. And so this morning, we all come, if I were to ask you to get up and preach a message about divorce, without using the Scripture, we would get a variety of ideas and opinions. You with me on that? Some would be right on. Some would be a little bit controversial. Some would be just way out there. And so today, my hope is that we'll take all of our understanding, we'll go to the Scripture, and then we'll let it, let it change us, and we'll put ourselves under the authority of Scripture. And so it's this authority that we must adopt in all areas of life, including the stuff in this series, the stuff that happens between the directories. As I mentioned to you last week, we're starting a series. We began it last week, continue this week. This is the second in a series of six messages on what happens between the directories. As I told you, I have directories from the last 10 years here on Grove, and, and I, I'm graciously not putting pictures on the screen for a couple of reasons. One, I just love you and don't want to embarrass some of you. I, secondly, I wouldn't want you to do that to me, because if you look back 10 years, I had hair then, and lots of it. And, um, and, and thirdly, I like to keep my job, and that's probably the most important reason. And so, anyway, but between these directories, a lot happens. Last week, we talked about the fact that some, for some of you, between those directories, marriage happened. And, and you became one with someone else. And, and what is God's view of marriage? We looked at that last week. If you weren't here, uh, I hope that you'll be able to check that out on the internet or get a CD, copy of that, and, and listen to that. What is God's view of marriage? And, and this week, we'll talk about the fact that between those directories, or maybe directories past, some of you experienced divorce. Some of you went through that awful, heartbreaking tragedy of having your family ripped apart by divorce. And so you look at one directory and you see your family as you once knew it. And then you look at the next one five to ten years later and you see a completely different family. In fact, you may see yourself in a picture alone. Or you may see yourself with your children and the spouse that you once knew is gone. And, and so that obviously is something that is huge that happens between those directories. And I want to say this to you, that most people, including including many Christians, and including the people that orchestrate and have for years our legal system, have shunned God's, the authority of God's Word on the subjects of marriage and divorce. By and large, we as a culture, not just here in America, but across the world, and not just unbelievers, but Christians as well, have shunned God's authority on these issues. Nearly every state has what's called a no-fault divorce law. That means that if you just simply say, we cannot any longer tolerate one another, that's good enough for the state, you can get a divorce. So even in our legal system, we do not go to God's Word in any way whatsoever. In fact, our efforts are to remove God from about everything we can and then wonder why He doesn't bless our country spiritually. It's amazing. Uh, we remove God from that. Anyway, that's a different sermon. But 
But when we remove God's authority, we are walking on dangerous ground. And it's obvious, of course, why we do this. Why, even as Christians, or why just as a society, we would remove ourselves from God's authority on these issues. Because, as we looked at last week, God sets a high standard. He has expectations for us, for His people. And we are sinful people, by and large, and want to do things our way. If you battled that, you probably did on the way here. Battling the fact that I want to do it my way, and God says something. His standard is high, and so as a result, we often will remove ourselves and say, well, I, I like this part of the Bible, but not that part, and so uh, we remove ourselves from His authority. But I'll say this, if we are to please God, and if we are to enjoy His blessings, then we must know and follow what He says about all of this, about marriage, about divorce, about kids that we'll talk about next week, about change, about disagreements, about life and death, and we'll... We'll enjoy his blessings and please him if we know and follow what he says about it all. Because he's the only one that transcends everything. He's the only one outside of our world who has chosen to get involved in what's going on. The only one who can fix the problems. And so we must go to him. We must base our decision making, our default thinking on the Bible. Not just on public opinion or personal hunches, but on God's word. As we begin this morning, I'm curious... And in no way meaning to embarrass anyone whatsoever. But I'm curious how many people here today have in your immediate family, be it you or someone very close to you in your family, parents, brother, sister, uh, maybe a child, maybe you in particular, have been touched in some way by divorce. Your immediate family, maybe it's you, maybe it's a close family member, maybe it's a child, a parent. How many of us in here have been touched in some way by divorce? Certainly not meaning to embarrass anyone whatsoever. Now, keep your hands up just a little bit. Now, I want you to, I want you to look around. There are over half the hands raised in here. Exactly. I figured if it was not over half, it would be all. Nearly every one of us, in some way, be it you personally, you've gone through that, or maybe it was that you grew up in a divorced home and your parents split up, or maybe you've had children and they've gone through divorce, or grandchildren, or maybe a brother or sister, or just a close friend that you consider a family, or somebody in your life has been touched by divorce. Uh, Nancy and I, uh, her parents were divorced when she was very young, two years old, and both remarried. My parents, uh, I'm thankful I'm blessed, and my parents have stayed together. Uh, but I realize that it is rare in today's society. And, uh, and I, I say that uh, and, and have you look around only to let you know that if you've experienced that, you're not alone. A lot of times isn't it true that Satan would want us to get over in a corner and he'd just kind of pound on us a little bit and tell us that what we've gone through is different than anybody else and that nobody would understand and that there's something wrong with us or we carry a stigma around with us forever. But you are not alone. And many of us would say, you know, I raised my hand not because of my parents or because of a child, but because that was me. We have many people in our congregation like that, many people in our community that experience that. You're not alone. And so we look at that and we say, what does God then have to say about the, the issue of divorce? If we have all been ex- exposed to it in some way, what do you do when someone says, instead of I do, they say I don't anymore? Some of you have faced that situation where someone has come to you, your spouse has come to you, and either admitted their sin to you of unfaithfulness, or they have simply told you, I don't love you anymore, and I don't want any part of this marriage. I dealt with a young couple a couple of weeks ago. 
They sat in my office. And the young man is wanting to reconcile. They're in their early 20s. The young lady, the first thing she said when she sat down, she said, I have no desire whatsoever to make this thing work. I'm here as a favor to him. First thing she told me. She was not combative. She wasn't argumentative. She wasn't yelling. Their heart was cold, obviously, and she said, I have no desire whatsoever. What do you do in those cases? How can we know what God has to say about it? And the Bible does speak about this subject at various points. Now, this is one thing in the Bible I honestly have to admit to you. I wish there was more about. I wish there was more about marriage and divorce and what God has to say about it in the Bible. Because if you read it, you'll find that he does speak about it, certainly, and he speaks very boldly and authoritatively, but not very often about this particular subject directly addressed toward this. But the truth is, I thought about it, wishing there was more. The truth is that we as sinful people would probably just try to find loopholes if God added more to it and try to figure out how we can get around this or that. You know what I'm saying? And so what God does include is very to the point, very authoritative, and should not be tremendously confusing, though it can be sometimes. And so I want you to look with me. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 19. And the verses, for the most part, when we get to them, will be on the screen behind me. So if you would like to follow along there, if that's easier for you, then feel free. But if you brought a Bible today and would like to turn to Matthew, and I'd like for you to turn there. It's the first book in the New Testament. And this morning, this will sort of be the, the passage that we'll look at, and then we'll springboard off of this to different parts in the Scripture. But this is a passage of Scripture that maybe you've read before. If you've read through the life of Jesus at all, you've probably come across this. So let's read the first nine verses here of Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished this instruction, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Have you read, Jesus replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, and he also said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Why then, they ask him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning, and I tell you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. God has a lot to say in a very short amount of verses about divorce. And I'll say this, that often what you'll find is when Jesus or the Bible speaks toward divorce, he reinforces the idea of what marriage was to be in the first place. And maybe you, as I said earlier, would go back and Check out the message from last week about God's original design for marriage. And I'll say this, as you read through the passages of Scripture, maybe in your daily study, when you come to an, uh, an interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees, understand that they are not friends, that they are against one another, the Pharisees in particular against Jesus. And so when they come to him with this question, it's not just in casual conversation. Hey, let me ask you what you think about this. Listen, we've been having a discussion. We can't settle it. We recognize you're God's son. You have authority on this. Would you, would you clear this up for us? 
says God hates divorced people. Never. In fact, it talks over and over about God's redemption and His continued love no matter what situation you go through. So don't leave today discouraged thinking, well, if God hates divorce and I've been divorced, well then put two and two together. Somehow that hatred, because I'm sort of covered by that, must then fall on me. Not at all. Not at all. Does God hate divorce? Absolutely. Does God hate you? No. Not at all. No matter what you've been through, God loves you. The enemy would have you think that because you've been divorced, if that's you, that God somehow does not love you or he's thrown you to the side and your life is sort of marred by that forever and you are now useless to God. The enemy, Satan, would want you to believe that. But understand where those lies come from. The Bible calls Satan the father of lies. That's exactly what he is. But the truth is that God loves you and that we do too and that you have not been discarded by God in any way. The truth also remains, however, that divorce is something that God hates. And we looked at the fact that last week that marriage, I think this is part of the reason why God hates it, that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That there is to be something said for this incredible word picture, so to speak. That if a marriage is done right, and it gives witness to the greatest attributes between Jesus and his church, unconditional love and forgiveness and oneness and all of that. And so when a marriage is torn apart... It then says something and does something to that witness. And, of course, we know that marriage in and of itself was also a part of God's original and perfect creation. And so he hates divorce because it tears that apart. And as I said last week, fearing for our country on one issue, I fear for our country that we have made divorce such a nonchalant issue in our country. And I don't say that because of anyone in particular in here. I just say, oh, I wish, I wish we... As a country, and in particular, we as Christians, would understand how God feels, and maybe that would then shape what we do. There are many reasons to think and to understand why God hates divorce, but I think that at the basis of all of it, I believe he hates divorce because of the next reason you'll see on the screen, because it is not his plan. It is not his plan. Anyone who says, well, I believe God has led me to divorce this person and marry this other person, is severely deceived and is a liar. God would not ever lead someone to divorce someone for absolutely no reason whatsoever. It is not his plan. His plan is perfect, and I believe God hates it when his plan gets messed up. God hates sin in particular. It has messed up his original plan, which included marriage. When divorce messes that up, obviously that comes under the wrath of God. Look at Matthew chapter 19 again. Beginning again in verse 3, some Pharisees approached him to test him. They said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that the one who created them in the beginning, here's his plan, made them male and female. And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God, here's the plan, what God has joined together or orchestrated or made happen, man must not separate. God's plan was this, from the very beginning. And understand that what he created before sin entered the world is exactly what he wanted it to be. And then after that, everything got messed up because of our sin. But God's original plan was this, one man and one woman with no options. One man, one woman, no options. Adam and Eve were alone in the garden. We have no idea how long. We really 
together by themselves, but there was nobody else. God didn't make Adam and Eve and then some other lady just in case. He didn't make Adam and Eve and some other guy just in case it didn't work out. He didn't do that. You know, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll go back to the Scripture and we'll say this and we'll defend that, that God made Adam and Eve and we'll defend that based upon the grounds of homosexual marriage. A same-sex marriage, but what we what we forget is that God made Adam and Eve by themselves without another spare, so to speak, and He originated it to be one man and one woman united together for life. That's God's plan. Now, I'm not saying anything that somehow that we should read into that in any way that homosexual marriage is somehow right or, or something like this, not. But at the same time, we have to take God's word for what it is. His plan was one man, one woman, no options. Some of you say, well, you know, I'm fulfilling that. I'm stuck. I'm, I'm just doing the best I can. That, the word in the King James Verse says, a man will leave his father mother and cleave. It's like glue, super glue. You ever stuck somebody together with super glue? What happens? You're taken apart. It destroys it, doesn't it? just rips you completely apart. That's the idea. God said, you're to be super glued together. That's the way it's supposed to work. United, super glued together. One man, one woman, no options. And it was designed not just to be stuck. Some of you are thinking, well, that's right. I'm biblical now. I'm stuck, you know. And maybe you were looking for that. I don't know. It's time to go. But, <clears throat> but, but it was designed to be a wonderful experience. We talked about that last week. It was designed to be a wonderful experience, bringing happiness and fulfillment to each person. To, to bring God's purposes of companionship and multiplication and what we called sanctification last week. And it's His standard that achieves the blessings that we so desire in our lives. And so His standard is one man, one woman, no options. And that's His standard. Now, the Pharisees have made their own rules. And it's an awful lot like what we do today. There were two schools of thought back then, following two different rabbis. One said no divorce whatsoever, period. doesn't matter. No divorce for any reason at all. You talk about stuck, there you are. No, no divorce. The other school of thought said you can divorce for whatever reason you want. When, when they interpreted in Deuteronomy where Moses had commanded to give a certificate, they took that as a command to divorce. And so they almost looked at themselves as righteous if they found some reason to divorce. And so divorce amongst the, the church leadership, the Pharisees, was rampant. And they were, you can imagine which view was the popular view, the one that said no divorce? No. They said, well, let's go with this guy who said we can get divorced for any reason. So they, they literally, in the, in the Talmud, which is the commentary from the Jewish people on the Old Testament itself, especially the first five books of the Bible, basically they said that a man who's had a bad wife gets out of hell because he's already experienced it on earth. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. Now, that sounds, that sounds like a joke, and I'm dead serious. They wrote that. You talk about, listen, that's a popular view, would it not be? Listen, if you've just had a bad and awful marriage, listen, you get eternal life in heaven because you've already experienced it on earth. You don't get any more of that. That's what the Jewish people were being taught. They were being taught that, you know what? Fellas, if, if your wife just does something that just irritates you, it's time to move on. She burns your dinner one too many times. Listen, drop her and find somebody who won't burn your dinner. Go find a good cup. Listen, if she at some point shows up in the morning without her makeup on and you are a little frightened, it is time to go, fellas. Ladies, you would have been taught, although it was a male-dominated society, and unfortunately that was one of the downfalls of it, was that 
men ruled over the ladies in an inappropriate way. But, ladies, it would have been, you know, if, if your guy, you know, puts on a little bit of extra weight over the years, and he's not quite the man you married, or he is plus some, then it is time for you to move on. You understand what I'm saying? Or if your guy shows up and he doesn't have a good excuse for why he's working all the time, then, hey, it's time to move on. We laugh at those, but, you know, that was their society. didn't matter. You find some indecency, the Bible said, and just get you another one. No problem at all. And we don't realize that, that our society is pretty close to what Jesus entered. But, you know, in today's world, if you just have some disagreements, then you may list on your divorce papers irreconcilable differences. It doesn't matter really what that means, because that term has come to encompass a whole lot of stuff. Burnt dinners, no makeup, a little pudginess, and the whole deal. It includes it all. You with me? And yet Jesus says that was not God's plan. He says God's plan was for life, super glued together, and what God has joined together, he said, don't separate. Don't separate. So he hates it. It's not his plan. He also shows us in Matthew 19 that it always begins with sin. It always begins with sin. I understand not all divorce is sin, but it always begins with sin. Verse 7, why then, they ask him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses, not commanded, but permitted you to divorce your wives. Because why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. The hardness of your hearts points to the fact they were sinful people who were unrepentant and unwilling to reconcile and get over their differences and forgive one another and stay with the person that they had committed their lives to. It always begins with sin. You think about the divorces you're aware of, be it in your life or someone close to you. You could probably trace it back, maybe not to a pinpoint time, but a series of events that began with sin. I would imagine every single person, if we were to talk, could say, you know what? It all started when the selfishness sort of creeped in. You know, it, it just began, it, some lustful thoughts began to come into mind. You know, it, it just began when we began to, to not be content with what God had given us, and we argued about money all the time. You see how everything in divorce can be traced back to some sin. Now, understand what I said at the beginning of this. It doesn't mean all divorce is sin, but it always begins with sin, the hardness of your hearts. Sin, I want you to know this, will absolutely destroy your life. Some of you have experienced that. You've been a rock bottom. And some of you are there now. And some of you are just coming out of that. You realize, you know what? Sin will destroy everything. Sin will destroy your marriage. It doesn't matter how strong it is right now. Sin will destroy it. Sin will destroy your life. And it has implications that none of us have ever imagined. And so I encourage you today, if you did nothing else, be ruthless about eliminating sin in your life. So it always begins with sin. But understand this, that it is sometimes permitted. Divorce is sometimes permitted. In verse 9 of chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus says, And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So he gives an exception, except for sexual immorality. Now, there are some common questions and curiosities that arise 
Well, then, what is the biblical grounds for divorce? How can I know if this is not sinful or if this is allowed by God? And as a result, what do I do? Now, I want you to understand this, and maybe this is just something right on the site. Where there is biblical grounds for divorce, there is also biblical grounds for remarriage. Where there is biblical grounds for divorce, there is also biblical grounds for remarriage. And so, it is not that God punishes forever those who have been divorced. In the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by one thing. Does anybody know what it is? Death. So as a result, the marriage bond was annulled, and you could go find yourself a new spouse. The only way that marriage was ever to be dissolved was by death. And so in, in the Old Testament law, originally it said, if you are an adulterer or an adulteress, you are to be put to death, which frees your spouse up. Later, God then permits divorce as a gracious concession to the guilty party. Understand that God's allowing people to live that commit sin. It's just graciousness to begin with. And so he says, look, I will be gracious to you. You commit adultery, you won't die. I'll permit divorce so your spouse is no longer punished. They are then free. So, so when there is biblical grounds for divorce, there is then biblical grounds for remarriage. Let me give you just a few of these. If you're taking notes, they're not going to be on the screen. Maybe you want to write these down, or maybe it's something specific to you or somebody close to you. Here are some common questions or curiosities about divorce and remarriage. When it is allowed, and what about remarriage? If there is sexual unfaithfulness, is divorce allowed? Yes. The Bible is very clear on that. It is allowed. In fact, Jesus said it right there. Later on, Paul said basically the same thing, and Jesus reaffirms what the Old Testament taught. And so as a result, if there is marital or sexual unfaithfulness, divorce is allowed, and as a result, then remarriage is allowed. And so if you're in that boat, if you have experienced that in your life, then it is okay. It is allowed in those scenarios. What about if there is no sexual unfaithfulness, but irreconcilable differences? I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What if there is no sexual unfaithfulness, but simply irreconcilable differences? Some of you have experienced that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. I command the married... Not I, but the Lord, basically saying the Lord didn't say this specifically, but I am I'm adding on to what he said, continuing what he taught. A wife is not to leave her husband. There it is again. Divorce is not God's plan. But if she does leave, the hardness of the heart, if she does leave, she must remain what? Unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And, not just the ladies, and a husband is not to leave his wife. So what about the fact, if there is no sexual unfaithfulness, but irreconcilable differences, and as a result, somebody says, I'm out of here, what are you supposed to do? I believe, based upon this scripture, that there is no biblical grounds in that case for divorce. Biblical grounds for divorce is not on irreconcilable differences. And as a result, what do you do if you are now the unmarried portion of that scripture? Can you remarry? I believe the scripture says no. You say, man, that's hard. I believe the scripture says no. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's a hard teaching. 
So irreconcilable differences, stay together, work it out, give help every chance you can. If one person leaves, the other person is to seek reconciliation so long as that is possible and in the process remain unmarried. What if the previous spouse, after all that happens, dies or remarries? So you've been divorced for irreconcilable differences, not on biblical grounds, and you say, but my former spouse has died or has remarried. What then do I do? Is remarriage okay for me at that point? I believe yes. Because then that marriage bond is now broken, and that person who has remarried is not to now get divorced again to go back and marry you again, and so you then are free to be remarried. So if there is still chance for reconciliation, the Bible says, remain unmarried. Seek reconciliation. Do all you can. But if there is now no chance for reconciliation because of the death of that former spouse or their remarriage, you're free. With me on that? I'm not trying to confuse in any way. I'm trying to stand on the Scripture. I'm not going to take it further, but we're not going to go less than what the Scripture allows to happen. But it says in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that that new marriage is to be only in the Lord, which means that if you are a believer and you are now going to be remarried and you are free to do that according to what the Bible says, then you must seek someone who is also sold out and loving Jesus Christ. And so that is the stipulation. What if you are married to an unbeliever? Some of us in here are married to a person who does not want anything to do with Jesus Christ. They may be a great person. You may love them deeply, but they are not a believer. What do you do then? 1 Corinthians 7 says that you are to stay with them. You have no grounds whatsoever to leave them because they are an unbeliever. You are to stay with them. The Bible says, who knows, maybe your influence on them will bring the blessing of God on your home, and they will experience that and be exposed to God's goodness and one day become a believer. Who knows, maybe you may be the person that will lead them to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians, stay with them. What if then the unbelieving spouse says, I'm done with you and your faith. I don't want anything to do with Jesus or you, and I'm out of here because you are a fanatic about that, and I don't want anything to do. Paul says you are then allowed to allow them to leave and seek remarriage because divorce at that point is allowed and permitted by God in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you're married to an unbeliever, stay with them. If they decide to leave because of your faith, you are permitted to let them go And when the divorce is filed, then seek remarriage to a believer. What if you say, I was divorced before I became a Christian? That happened in my former life, so to speak, and since then, I became a believer in Jesus Christ. There are lots of different interpretations on this particular topic and this specific issue, and I'll tell you basically where I have settled on this and what I believe. You may disagree. You may read people who disagree, but I believe that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when it says that when you become a believer, all the old is gone and the new has come, then you have a brand new life. And I believe that because of that, based upon that particular passage of Scripture, if you were divorced before you became a Christian, may you remarry, I believe the answer is yes. So for some of you in here or some family members, that may be your scenario. I realize in saying all of that, that there may be people here who say, well, you know, 
I don't really like that. And I understand. And I want to point you to this. I'd be happy to talk with you at any time about any of that stuff, by the way. But what I'll take you back to is exactly what Jesus took the Pharisees back to, which is quoting God. Because our argument, if we disagree with the Scripture, is not with me, but it's with God. And so we'll together, if we have issue with that, we'll look at what God's Word says, but we must make it our authority and then adjust our lives accordingly. And so it is sometimes permitted. Now, there are unique scenarios, the case of abuse and so on, and I would encourage you to get help. And I would encourage you to seek counsel on that. I'd be happy to talk with you about those particular issues. And so, even though it is permitted, the next thing there on your notes is that it is never required. Even though it's permitted, it's never required. You may say, well, you know, I, listen, I know I'm allowed in this particular case to seek a divorce, but I really don't think that's what I should do. I would absolutely stand up and applaud you for your efforts to reconcile a marriage that has been interrupted and crushed by marital unfaithfulness. It is not required. It is permitted. You will not sin if you seek a divorce based upon biblical grounds, but it is not required either. And some of the greatest marriages that I have seen are those in which one person failed morally and the other person said, look, Yes, we've got some major issues, and I am crushed, but let me tell you, we will work this out together, and I will reconcile with you. That's always God's first choice. Always God's first choice is for reconciliation. It's never required. Imagine how hard that is, though, to do that. Imagine the incredible, unconditional love that demonstrates. And I believe through that, we get a glimpse of the love that Jesus has for each one of us as we are consistently unfaithful to him, and he continually takes us back. It is never required. And also, though, it has lasting implications. For some of you, you're now considering divorce. Your marriage, though folks here at church may not know it, your marriage may be hanging on by a thread. And you simply keep it together for one reason or another, or you're tempted to go and talk with a lawyer and try to figure out what would be the best course of action. I want to tell you that it has lasting implications. So let me talk to you on a very logical level. Let me give you the biblical part of it first. In the second part of Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I love the, the version we get in the, in the version called the message. I hate divorce, says God. I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. Other translations say, when you do that, it splatters all over your clothes. It has lasting it splatters everywhere. Each year, over one million American children, this is according to the Heritage Foundation, will suffer the divorce of their parents. One million kids every year in America. Over half, or half rather, of all children born to married parents this year will experience the divorce of their parents before they reach the age of 18. Lasting implications, children whose parents are divorced are increasingly the victims of the abuse and neglect. They exhibit more health problems as well as behavior and emotional problems, are involved more frequently in crime and drug abuse, and have higher rates of suicide. Children of divorced parents are more frequently to demonstrate a diminished learning capacity, performing more poorly than their peers from intact two-parent families in reading, spelling, and math. 
They're also more likely to repeat a grade. Divorce generally reduces the income of the child's primary household and seriously diminishes the potential of every member of the household to accumulate wealth. Religious worship, which has been linked to health and happiness as well, as, as well as marriages and better family life, longer marriages and better family life, is less prevalent in divorced families. Divorce in, in, for the children leads to destructive ways of handling conflict and a poor self-image. Children of divorce demonstrate an earlier loss of virginity, more cohabitation, higher expectations of divorce, higher divorce rates later in life, and less desire to have children. That's just the kids. It has lasting implications. And you say, look, I don't have to have those statistics to tell me how much pain it causes. I don't need you to read from something that gives all the stuff about kids to understand the absolute destruction that is caused in my life. You know if you've been through it, the lasting implications. You'll never get over it. You can move on. I praise God for restoration. But let me tell you, there is something that will always be there. I see it in my wife's family. And I love them, but I see it. They have all moved on. They don't spend time thinking about it, but boy, it still affects them. It still affects Nancy, and she doesn't even remember. It has lasting implications. It splatters everywhere. And so as a result of looking at what God has to say about all of this, what do we do? So here's what you go home with. Here's what you say, all right, look, I understand all of that. What then do we do? First thing, avoid it. Sounds pretty simple. Yes, it is. Avoid it. With everything that is in you, avoid it. If you're a person who is single right now, be you a young person or a middle-aged person or an older person, and you're thinking one day, I would like to be married for the first time or married again, then prepare the right way. Seek somebody who is just as, if not more so, in love with Jesus Christ as you are. And if you don't find that person, then you keep looking. Reorient yourself to what it is that's going to make a marriage last. Looks and money will change. If you find somebody with character and with values, you hang on to that person and you latch on to them and you see if this this relationship can't one day glorify God and say, this is the person who has character and loves Jesus. That's who I want to be with. And so if you're a person who is preparing for a marriage one day, then do it God's way. And parents, those of you that still have children in your home or still have single children that you are dealing with and helping. I want to say a couple of things to you. If you have children that are young enough to where they live in your home and they have maybe not yet started dating yet, don't let them date too young. I'm going to upset some of the young people that may listen to this. It's time we have to interrupt the process and avoid letting our kids try to make adult decisions before they are adults. If that's the case, if you want them to make adult decisions, tell them go get a full-time job, pay the rent, and all the bills, and be on their own until then. Don't allow them to date as a grown-up person would date. Young people, the very worst thing you can do in your relationship is to spend time alone. You say, well, hold on a second. How are we supposed to get to know one another? You'll figure that out, but let me tell you. You're going to be texting all the time and on Facebook and all that junk. You know how it works. But let me tell you, the very worst thing you can do to set yourself up for absolute failure and the wrong first step is to spend time alone on a consistent basis. You and I both know what happens in time alone. 
what we even have in common is not what we think we have in common. We build our relationships on the wrong stuff. So parents, teach your kids what it means to be godly, to have a godly worldview, and to filter everything through the authority of God's Word. Young people, pursue the person who loves Jesus just as much as you do. Because once you're married, you're stuck, the Bible says. So you better pick the right one. You're stuck, like super glue. For those who are married, let me give you some words, just some words to write down. For those of you that are married, love. Husbands, it says in Ephesians, are to love their wives. Guys, that may mean a little bit of romance every once in a while. A little bit of thinking about her when you just don't have to. A little bit of doing the small things that she would just come alive if you did. Love. The word is respect. That same verse says wives are to respect their husband. Ladies, do you realize that guys thrive on admiration and affirmation? They thrive on it. Don't ask me why you can think we're weird, but that's just the way that it is. We want to know that you think something about us. Respect. Instead of just saying all the things that, well, you don't do this, or you always, or you never, whatever it is, respect. Humility is another word. When's the last time you said, I'm sorry? Isn't it true that the longer sometimes a relationship lasts, the less we feel like that we need to operate as if we did when we first began that relationship? When you constantly, no matter what it is, look, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you, afraid of losing them early on. And we settle in humility. Another word is forgiveness. Simply canceling the debt. You don't owe me for that anymore. Another word is repentance. You say, you know what? I've been doing this way a long time. And I'm going to turn from that. And I want you to help me. And with God's help, I'll be a different person. Maybe today, if you're a married person or a single person, you just drive a stake down in your life and you say, from this point on, I will pursue marriage the right way. Or I will, I will go after the one I am married to the right way. Taking divorce as seriously as God takes. And if you're a married person, I would encourage you to never mention the word divorce in your home. Never even let it come out of your mouth. When it comes into your head and Satan's bound to throw it in there, dismiss it and say, I'm committed to one flesh. We are stuck glued together. The second thing, so you avoid it. The second thing is to heal from it. Heal from it. And that means you go to God. That means maybe that you go to some counseling. That means maybe you talk to someone who's been there and they can help see you through that, but you heal from it. That means that you confess any sin that may have contributed in your life to the divorce that you went through. You confess that. You choose to forgive. And then you don't rush into something else. I have a policy. I don't have a verse for it, but I have a policy. And I will not perform the wedding ceremony of anyone who's been divorced. Their divorce has been final for less than two years. So we'll do it. It's because I don't want anybody rushing into something, making an unwise decision. You'll seek reconciliation if possible. And then from this point forward, you'll do life God's way, including what he says about marriage. And the last question that may be on your mind is this. What if... I divorced, and I remarried against God's plan. What if I divorced, and I remarried against God's plan, and I realized today that I was wrong? What do I do? What if 
I divorced and remarried against God's plan, can I be forgiven? And the overwhelming answer is yes. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, it says in Romans. And so you may look at your life and you may say today as a result, you may not be angry with me, you may simply say, I've messed up. I may not have realized it, but I understand it today. The Bible says God stands ready to forgive if you are ready to confess. And so what if you are that person? You can be forgiven. And you can have that marriage maybe that you're in now be the one that God has designed for you where both people come alive and are fulfilled. And so I encourage you today to seek God. And above all, at the last little part of your bulletin there as we close, as a Christian, you must adopt God's view of marriage and divorce. You must adopt God's view of marriage and divorce, not your own and not society's. And it's a difficult teaching, but it is true. So I appreciate you hanging with me this morning as we get through that sort of thing. I want you to know that as your pastor, I love you. God loves you. I'm committed to teaching you what the Bible says, even if sometimes it's hard. And in that time, if it's difficult, maybe you have questions, I want you to know I'm available. And I would love to talk with you. I'd love to search the scripture together. Because what if you could have the marriage whether you're in one right now or not, that you've always dreamed of? What if you can have the marriage that brings that fulfillment? Maybe you are early in life or later in life, and you've said, you know what, I don't think there's any hope, or I've messed up a couple of times, or things didn't go right for me in my previous marriage, or maybe I've had a couple, and you just say, you know what, what about, what, what if? What if you can have that kind of marriage? I believe you can. What if Elm Grove could be a place where no one, no one, imagine this, got divorced. No one. What if? I believe it's possible. But I believe it has to be that we bring our lives under the authority of God's Word. We talk a little bit about irreconcilable differences today. And the truth is, you may or may not be experiencing irreconcilable differences in your marriage. But the Bible is clear that each one of us has irreconcilable differences with God himself. And those irreconcilable differences cannot be made up by anything that we can do. Only God can cancel those irreconcilable differences and make us right with him and restore us to a relationship with him. And he did it when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And he canceled the debt of our irreconcilable differences. You realize God didn't cause the problem. We did. But we can't solve the problem. And so today, the way that you can enter into that relationship with him that will then bring blessing on your life, that will then create for you the opportunity of a strong Christian marriage. The way you do that, the Bible is very clear. It says, I confess my sin. I turn from that. I place my trust in Jesus Christ. I want him in my life. And I'll bring myself under his authority knowing he knows what's best for me. So maybe that's the prayer you need to pray today, God. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Jesus, come in and clean me out and help me be the person you want me to be. We're going to pray. We'll stand. We'll sing through a closing song.